0: So, uh, this past Monday, the Queen and Prince Philip celebrated 70 years of marriage, the first monarch and consort to ever reach their platinum wedding anniversary. Born in 1926, Queen Elizabeth II, also this week, becomes the oldest living head of state in the world. And at age 91, she is just one year younger than the Feast of Christ the King we're celebrating this morning. For the first 10 years of her life, Princess Elizabeth, as she would have been, certainly never expected to even become queen. Yet this year, after 65 years on the throne, she celebrates the first ever Sapphire Jubilee as the United Kingdom's longest serving sovereign. During her long reign, Queen Elizabeth II has met weekly with 13 different British prime ministers and seen 13 US presidents come into office and she's met all except two, Lyndon B. Johnson, and so far she's managed to avoid President Trump. (laughs) She has flown millions of miles on more than 270 foreign trips to over 120 different countries, and all without ever owning a passport. According to one university's calculations, she's shaken over one million different people's hands. And in public, her trademark bold and colourful attire and her spectacular millinery are not because she wants to make a fashion statement, but because she wants to ensure that in any crowd, even those who might be 10 or 20 rows back, will see her as she comes past. As the Countess of Wessex explained in a recent documentary, she needs to stand out for everyone to be able to say with confidence, I saw the Queen. Off-duty, she dresses much less colourfully, so much so that last year, walking near Balmoral in plain headscarf and overcoat, two US tourists completely failed to recognise her, instead chatting amicably to what they thought was an elderly British lady. They asked her if she lived nearby. When she replied that indeed she did, they got extremely excited to ask her, then have you ever met the Queen? (laughs) To which Her Majesty replied quite accurately and to their dismay that unfortunately no, the Queen had never met the Queen. (laughs) But she pointed to the undercover police officer beside her and said, but he has met the Queen. I wonder if anyone here has ever met or seen the Queen the Queen. Not necessarily for tea at the palace, but indirectly at an event, a walkabout, or in public. You see, the majority of the UK population can indeed say that they have met or seen the Queen. And for around 85% of us in the UK, we've only ever lived under her reign, only ever known Elizabeth II as our sovereign. But while most of us have only ever met, seen, or lived under the reign of a single monarch, Our reading today shows we must also choose the reign of which king and kingdom we choose to live under. The dictionary defines a reign as the most predominant power or prevalent authority that has an overwhelming influence over a place or a period. Queen Elizabeth II's reign is characterized perhaps by her sense of duty, her dignity, her stability and steadfastness in times of great change. But it's not just monarchs who reign. Silence can reign. Confusion can reign. And all too often, fear can reign. Romans 5 contrasts throughout then, the reign of death and the reign of life. Two kingdoms that exist in parallel, but with very different authority and influence. The reign of chaos and the reign of peace. The reign of sin and the reign of grace. The reign of darkness and the reign of light. The reign of Adam, the world as we know it, and the reign of Christ, the kingdom as God desires it to be. Adam's reign, like that of any tyrant, consists mostly of fear. It is defined by the absence of righteousness, right relationship with God, and the presence instead of death. Throughout Romans, Paul keeps contrasting these two realms. Adam's reign is more prevalent, but Christ's reign is more powerful. Death is the default reign we are all born under, but the reign of life is all of our destinies. At this point, most commentaries get all technical and tie themselves into theological knots about the exact mechanics of the transfer of the sin from Adam to each of us. But to be honest, I kind of worry that in doing that, we're just looking at the technicalities, perhaps trying to find an excuse or some wriggle room, some sort of way out for us. But when we read the text and when we look at the world, I think our predicament, as identified by our separation from God and the inevitability of death, is clear and undeniable. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam was banished from the garden. The way, of the, tree of, the way to the tree of life was barred. God no longer walked with Adam. Adam's name means man, so God no longer walked with man in the cool of the day. It wouldn't be fair if my children were punished individually or directly for my mistakes, but they will be different people and live different lives because of the consequences of my actions and indeed the choices of all of us. Murders, wars, climate change, Brexit do not punish future generations, but the consequences of them will be lasting and inherited. For each of us, there is no greater consequence than the nationality that we are born into. In my case, I hold a passport as a British citizen, but all of us are born also under the reign of Adam, a consequence which is true for all of us. We live in a world still marked and marred, not by continual punishment, but the lasting consequence of Adam's sin and our own. We live under a reign of fear and most importantly separation from God that ultimately means we live under the reign and fear of death. None of this was what God intended, but all of it has been inevitable from Genesis chapter 3, from page 5 of your Bibles. And bear in mind, the first two or three are just copyright and blank pages. Inescapable, inevitable, until the cross. The Pharisees, Keith spoke about last week, had seized upon the law as a way of escaping the reign of Adam. And if kept perfectly, they considered the law was the only way of earning their righteousness. Paul challenges this twice in our passage today. In verse 13, for while there was no accounting for sin prior to the law, there was still death. Therefore, in verse 20, Paul declares, the law did not save us from death, it just in fact increased sin by making the accounting of it more accurate and consistent. This would have outraged the entire Jewish community for whom the law represented their only hope. And all the more remarkable when we consider Paul's past, we read in Philippians 3, 5. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. If anyone could claim self-righteous perfection, it was Saul, Paul. But what Leganism had not, could not achieve, he ultimately found perfected in Christ. Righteousness, a restored relationship with God, can never come from our own self-righteous actions. However hard I work, however many laws I make up and keep, all I can increase is my own self-righteousness. There is only one way that you can escape the reign of Adam and the rule of death. Only one way to receive the true righteousness that saves and restores. I always try to come up with a line that is the sermon in a sentence, but on the festival of Christ the King, we can go one better. In verse 17 of today's reading, we have the whole gospel in a single sentence. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How much more? Christ's is the victory, and Paul tells us here, friends, the score wasn't even close. The provision of grace is abundant, and righteousness a gift freely given. But notice that receiving a gift is no passive act. It must be received. You must choose to accept it. I love the biblical language around grace. In our churches we often make it sound small or timid, easily frightened away or often out of stock, as if God is looking for some reason to trip us up or keep us from it. The truth is the opposite. Grace is abundant and God does not seek to punish but pursues the undeserving to ensure that no one is excluded. There seems no hope if grace is impossible to earn or deserve. No way across the border between the two kingdoms. That's what the world tells you. That's what your gut might be telling you this morning. Rewind just a few verses to Romans 5 verse 8, where Paul declares, But the good news is that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Yes, grace is impossible to earn or deserve. That is a fact. But God reconciled us into it by the death of Jesus. However, unready you feel, however undeserving I am, we do not cross into the kingdom in our own name, but under the grace and by the authority of the King. You see, only kings and queens get to travel without passports. The rest of us would be forever stuck at the border without a letter of authority that enables us to cross without let or hindrance. No one is yet born into Christ's kingdom. But Christ died that all may freely enter into it, without let or hindrance, that no one may be left behind in slavery or fear. The reign of Adam has been overcome by the reign of Christ the King. Like the jubilation and hope on liberated faces in Zimbabwe this week, we too should celebrate our newfound freedom. There is a reign of truth, of light, and of life that has broken into the darkness. Paul says that the reign is the very opposite of everything under the rule of Adam. Righteousness reverses Paul's entire understanding of the law. Not that we are to be perfectly obedient such that we earn righteousness, but that by our righteousness gifted to us each by grace, we keep, fulfill, and perfect the law. To reign in life is to know fully the abundant life, the special life. It means the overcoming, overwhelming, all-consuming life. The word for it, biblically, just happens to be my wife's name, Zoe. I normally tell her if I'm gonna mention her, but this is a technicality and she'll like this one. Zoe is a reign that unites us with God's own life. Zoe is the life and relationship that Jesus himself lived, blessed and righteous in the present and for eternity. You were born under the reign of Adam, but you were designed and destined under grace to live a life of Zoe, full, abundant, righteous and restored into relationship As we share communion in a few moments, we have the opportunity, once again, as we receive the bread and the wine, to recognize and receive God's free gift of grace, to be restored by the blood of Jesus into His righteousness, and in doing so, to share in Christ's relationship with the Father. You can, today, escape tyranny, escape slavery. And instead choose to pitch your tent in and pledge your allegiance to the kingdom of God. And accept the reign of Christ, your king. My dear friend Ray shared a verse with me recently. I normally abuse him, but I'll thank him this morning. From Proverbs Proverbs chapter 4 verse 18, which summed up evocatively what happens as this gift of righteousness flourishes among believers. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Friends, it's not yet midday, but by the abundance of grace, dawn is breaking over Linfield. But I want to ask you, have you met the king? It's only the first glimmer of dawn, but the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is breaking through here. And as it does, the light is shining brighter and brighter, and the darkness is abating. But I want to make sure, I need to make sure. Have you met the king? That was the question and challenge the world posed by Pope Pius on the feast he instituted. Have you met, do you know, Christ as king? Have you received his free gift of grace? Facing the rise of fascist tyrants, Pius wanted to remind world leaders and concerned citizens of the higher authority of Christ as king. King over all and above all. Paul's letter to the Romans was a letter about authority of Christ the king, sent to Rome the seat of all earthly power. This would be Paul's message today to Westminster or the White House, to Brussels, to Berlin or to Canberra. Paul reminds us, today's feast reminds us, the act of communion reminds us that whatever our nationality, our politics, or our circumstances, Christ reigns in us and over us. Not by the might of any army, not by any individual state or nation, but by his abundant grace. Through his free gift of righteousness, purchased by the ultimate act of love. How much more, then, than the pomp and pageantry of any royal occasion should we celebrate the feast and festival of Christ the King? His victory is our salvation, our liberation from the reign of sin and death. Long may Christ the King reign over us, reign over every heart and every mind. Long may he be sovereign over every action and every thought and every deed. Right now, the darkness of Adam's reign is breaking dawn is breaking through. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done now and forever. Amen.